Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Well, last week we began a sermon series using a book called Paradoxology, which is written by a guy called Krish Kandia. And in this book, and what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, is paradoxes within the Christian faith. And what Krish does in each chapter is take different characters from the Bible and looks at, at these characters and uses them to open a window into a paradox. Two seemingly opposing truths, which are there in Christianity, there within Judaism, there perhaps within the very nature of who God is, and in which we have to hold intention. Now, if we're honest, in our society and in our culture, we're not very good at that. Um, I was uh, on Thursday afternoon at a lecture at the Book Festival, and it was a fascinating um, lecture um, in which the speakers looked at the different stories, the different narratives that people who are prominent in public life tell. And so they looked at Barack Obama, they looked at Donald Trump, they looked at uh, Jeremy Corbyn, they looked at Angela Merkel, they looked at Macron, the French president, and they recognized that increasingly what was happening in our society in the West in the 21st century is a sort of dualistic story that's being told. It's them and it's us. So whether it's about refugees, whether it's about Brexit, whether it's about globalization, anything really, it's them versus us. What was fascinating is that I was chatting to Anne beforehand, who was also there, is that no one had any solution to it. 
There was lots of sort of wringing of hands. I think the average age of the audience was about 72. And basically, they were just going, well, it's just dreadful. We're doomed. And he came out thoroughly depressed at the end of it. But what was also quite striking was that they threw it open for questions in the last 15 minutes. And about eight people threw out different questions. And consciously or subconsciously, they all did exactly the same thing. They all took dualistic approaches. So we had somebody who is an environmentalist and an activist. And she said, young people don't like working with NGOs. And I thought, well, that's not true, but she sounded really certain about it. And then somebody else over here said something else about something in society. And you could see that what was being reflected in the audience was exactly what had been talked about from the people who were on the panel. This dualism, it's either or. No ability, seemingly, to be able to hold two things and say, well, there's some good in that and there's some good in that. And whether we saw it in the independence referendum, whether we saw it in Brexit, increasingly that is true of our society. And if we're honest, it is also true about lots and lots of churches, particularly in the evangelical world that we belong to. So you have churches that say, we're into the Bible, we're reformed. And then you have other people who say, well, we're into the spirit, we're charismatics. And seemingly it's either or. And people go to conferences where the Bible is taught, or people go to conferences where the Holy Spirit is encountered. And again, it's seemingly you cannot have one or the other. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at one called New Horizon in Northern Ireland. Great time. Uh, but we, we challenged both the person who was speaking in the morning and me, who was speaking in the evening, the notion of what they called the two talks. So in the morning, they called them Bible readings or Bible teaching. And then in the evening, when I was speaking, they've ignored the Bible, and uh, they called them inspirational celebrations. And I said, I think you've got the wrong person for that. And me and Heather, or Heather and I, who Heather was doing the Bible readings and I was doing the talks in the evening, said, why are you making this distinction between the two? Why is it either or? Why can't it be both and? Why can't the Bible be inspiring and celebratory? And why can't Dave use the Bible every now and again? And I did each night. Now, that paradox is there in our society. Last week, we looked at Abraham and the paradox uh, that was in his life. The fact that God is a God who needs nothing but demands everything. And this evening, what we're looking at is the paradox found in the life of Moses, a God who is far away and yet a God who is close as well. One of the classic films of the early 1990s uh, was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, perhaps you remember it. It was really popular in our house, uh, mainly because of the theme tune, uh, Everything I Do, I Do For You, by Brian Adams, that was at number one for about five years. And um, I was telling the 11 o'clock congregation uh, that we went on holiday, and one of Kathy's colleagues uh, put it on a loop on a cassette tape, and basically we drove through for two weeks throughout most of northern France with Everything I Do, Do For You, just playing again and again and again. And by the end of that, holiday, I could not tell you what I wanted to do to Brian Adams. 
Um, but it was, a, it was a classic film. It was a film that hung fairly loose to history, uh, never mind geography. If you remember the start of the film, uh, Robin Hood arrives with uh, Morgan Freeman, um, Kevin Costner's playing uh, Robin Hood, and they arrive uh, on the, the, the beach at Dover, and that evening they've arrived in Nottingham. That's a pretty impressive walk, uh, if you think about it. Even more impressive when you realise that the location of where they set Nottingham was actually Hadrian's Wall. So they've gone from the beach in Dover to Hadrian's Wall in one day. That is some walking. Um, but there's this bit in this, this clip in the film that uh, the still of is on the screen where um, Guy of Gisborne's men are riding towards Robin Hood and Morgan Freeman. Um, he's not called Morgan Freeman in the film. Um, but he, he see, Robin Hood sees them far away and Morgan Freeman puts this eyeglass to his eye and he passes it to Kevin Costner. And Kevin Costner, as Robin Hood, puts it to his eye and what is far away, these uh, horsemen sort of galloping towards him, all of a sudden are huge and seem really, really near. And, and Kevin Costner's character almost falls backwards off the wall of the castle because what was far away is suddenly really, really close. And that's the paradox that we're looking at this evening in Exodus chapter 3. That the God who is distant, the God who is other, the God who is holy, the God who is majestic, the God who is all-powerful, the one through whom the whole of creation was made, is also a God who is personal and a God that we can call Father and a God who not only comes close but actually comes and lives inside us if we decide to follow Jesus. It's an incredible paradox right at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's all found in that encounter between Moses and God in Exodus chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible or if you've got a smartphone or a tablet, if you want to turn uh, to Exodus chapter 3 and this incident uh, that Emily read for us a few moments ago. Well, we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3. It is 40 years since Moses has had to leave Egypt. The story of the Israelites is that they were taken into Egypt to get refuge. They multiply in number. The Egyptians are scared stiff by how successfully the Israelites are breeding in number. And they realize that very soon they're going to be outnumbered. And they decide to put them into slavery. So they put them into slavery. Even worse than that, Pharaoh announces that there will be infanticide, the firstborn male of every Hebrew woman under the age of two or three is going to be put to death. Moses' mum and sister, using some very clever ingenuity, managed to position it in such a way that Moses escapes death. And actually, the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in a wicker basket. And Moses' sister is hiding in the bulrushes. She comes and asks Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, uh, do you mind if, if I find somebody who would look after uh, this baby in your court? And, and the princess says, yes, that's fine. And, and, and Moses' sister goes and finds Moses' mum. And the, the, the irony is that Moses ends up being brought up in the palace of Pharaoh. He, he ends up being brought up in, in, in the royal family. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. 
but also he's being given the best education in the world. And he goes through most of his life for the first 40 years, living a life of luxury, being aware that he doesn't quite belong, but also he's benefiting from this incredible education. But he knows still that he's an Israelite. He knows that he's a Hebrew. And he's concerned about the plight of his people that he sees being maltreated every day. One day he's out walking and he sees a really cruel Egyptian slave driver kill one of the Hebrew slaves. He's so outraged, he kills the Egyptian slave driver. He thinks he can keep it quiet. Eventually word creeps out that in fact Moses has killed somebody. And Moses flees away from Egypt. He goes to a place called Midian. And for 40 years, he lives his life there. It's miles away from Egypt. It's miles away from his people. He marries. He has two sons. And his job is looking after the flock of his father-in-law. And on the day that we meet Moses again in Exodus chapter 3, he has fled to avoid the consequences of what he's done. He's living with his father-in-law. He's far away from the Egyptian palace where he'd been brought up. And he takes verse 1 of chapter 3, the flock that he's being looking after, to what's described in the NIV as the far side of the wilderness. The King James Version has a much more evocative description. It describes it as the backside of the desert. The backside of the desert. So basically, we're being told that Moses is in the last place that you would think God would meet somebody. He's not just in the desert, but he's in the backside of the desert. He's in the the worst place. He's in the loneliest place. He's in the most obscure place. And it's at that moment that God meets him. Moses, who'd been raised as a prince in Egypt, and was therefore, as we're told in Acts chapter 7, the recipient of the wisdom of the Egyptians. What did that mean? It would have meant that he was an expert in hieroglyphics, an expert in science, an expert in literature, an expert in military tactics, an expert in diplomacy, an expert in government, expert in economics. Now finds himself looking after a herd of sheep miles away from Egypt as far away from the center of things as he could possibly get. And as far as Moses was concerned, 40 years on from when he had left Egypt, this was, if you like, day 14,600 as a shepherd. And it was no different to the previous day, 14,599, and he thinks presumably no different to tomorrow, 14,601. But then everything changes. And we see in verses 1 to 3 this strange incident, the bush that didn't burn. If you've got a Bible of the church and it says Moses and the burning bush, and you've got a pen, you have my permission to take it out and rub that out, scrawl it out because it's actually wrong. It says Moses and the burning bush. The whole point of this bush was that it didn't burn. It was on fire, but it wasn't burning. 
Moses in the desert was probably very used to seeing things just spontaneously combust. They do in the hot weather. Um, we were on holiday uh, in Croatia and there were incredible um, forest fires near where we were. And we, we saw these planes going over and picking up water and going to drop them on, on the forests that were on fire. That's what happens in hot weather. That's what happens in hot places. Moses was well used to seeing bushes that were burning. What he wasn't used to seeing was seeing a bush that was on fire that wasn't burning. Moses sees this bush that's on fire but not consumed by the fire. His reaction, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up, verse 2. It begs the question, how often do we see God doing something and miss it? Now, sometimes there are occasions, perhaps when we draw aside from our usual activity, when God does speak to us. So maybe we go to something like New Horizon or uh, new wine or spring harvest, or we go on an SU holiday or Soul Survivor or Abernethy, and God, for some reason, does use those occasions when we step out of our normal routine, and God uses those times to speak into our lives. There's nothing particularly special about that time, but it's because we're in a different place and a different routine, maybe we're just in a, a different openness to God. Maybe for some of you here this evening, you're here visiting Edinburgh, and because you're in a fresh situation in a different church, God is able to speak to you tonight, perhaps in a way that he hasn't spoken to you for years. But how many of us miss when God speaks to us in the everyday? When right in the middle of our boring, mundane, everyday existence, just as Moses was on day 14,600, God might be wanting to speak to us. God might be doing something and drawing something to our attention, but we miss it. We miss it. We miss it perhaps because we're too busy. We miss it perhaps because we're preoccupied. We miss it because we've got used to seeing things the way we've got used to seeing them. Four or five weeks ago, we had some friends from the States visiting us, and we went on the tourist bus around Edinburgh. Now, we haven't done the tourist thing around Edinburgh for about 15, 16 years. We did it lots in the first few years that we lived here because we had lots of visitors. We suddenly became very popular with people, and they wanted to come and see us and see the zoo and the castle and everywhere else. But after about four or five years, we weren't that popular because all our friends had been to see us. And so we stopped doing the tourist thing. We stopped going on the tourist bus. And for the first time for about 16 years, we got on the top deck of this bus and we had the commentary and we went round Edinburgh doing the tourist thing for about an hour. And we saw a different city. We saw it from a different perspective. It was very different to when you walk through a city. It was very different to when we drive through the city. Suddenly, being given the time and the commentary, we saw the city in a different light. When you see things in a different light, you have an opportunity to reflect on them in a different way. Moses saw this bush that wasn't 
burning. It was on fire, but it wasn't being burnt up. And he recognized that something different was happening. Something different was going on. Maybe, as I say, God does want to speak to you in the everyday, just as he spoke to Moses, but you miss it. You miss it because you're too busy. You miss it, perhaps, because you're too preoccupied. I love the story that John Altberg tells against himself. Um, He landed the job as associate pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, a megachurch in the States, a church of between 20 and 25,000 people with a staff of 400 And he rang his spiritual director, a guy called Dallas Willard, who said, and he he asked him, he said, how am I going to maintain my my sort of spiritual life with all the demands that are going to be made upon me? And Dallas Willard said this really deep and profound sentence. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg says he wrote that down and then said, yeah, what's next? And Dallas Willard said, that's it. Maybe that's a word for somebody here this evening. God wants to speak to you. God has been wanting to speak to you for some time now. But actually you're too caught up with the busyness of life. You're too caught up in maybe what might be very, very good things. There might even be church things. But actually, you've got caught up in what somebody once called the barrenness of a busy life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Moses sees the bush that's on fire, and he goes over. And it's then, and only then, that God speaks. It's there in verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. It's fascinating to see that God waits for Moses to go over, to stop and take notice, to be inquisitive. And it's then and only then that he speaks. And Moses replies with this phrase, We heard it last week in the story of Abraham. It's a peculiar phrase, one word in the Hebrew, hinyani. It's a word that simply means, here I am. It's a word that we'll perhaps see later in the book of Samuel when Samuel says, here am I. It's the phrase that Isaiah uses when he has that vision from God in Isaiah chapter 6 where God says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I. Someone said it's the only ability that God requires, availability. Here I am. So Moses goes over and God speaks, verse 4. And then we see verses 4 to 6, this paradox. Just in these first three, four, five, six verses, that God is both close and far away. God calls Moses by name, in person. It's the first time that Moses has had a direct encounter with God. Prior to this, he's known about God. Raised by his mum, albeit in an Egyptian palace, he's heard the stories about Abraham. He's heard the stories about Isaac. He's heard the stories about Jacob. He's heard the stories of his Hebrew heritage. 
He would have known about God. But now Moses meets God. And God calls him by name. Moses. Moses. God draws really close, and in perhaps the most intimate way possible, reveals himself to Moses. Not shepherd, not or you, not murderer, that wouldn't have been helpful, but Moses, Moses. So God draws really close and calls him by name. But almost immediately we have the paradox. Because no sooner does Moses begin to respond that God says, don't come any closer. Don't come any closer. Because where you're standing is holy ground. Take your sandals off, Moses. Because where you're standing is holy ground. When I reveal myself, Moses, the ground where I am becomes holy. Because I am holy. Don't come any closer. And in this one incident, we see the tension, the paradox, that God is personal, close, described as a loving father, a caring mother, a faithful friend, a genuine helper, all pictures and descriptions of God that we see throughout Scripture. And yet at the same time, he is the great I am, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the eternal, the revealer of mysteries, the one who is above all things, before all things, and the one through whom all things were made. He is holy, distinct, different, and separate. And yet he's a God who knows us individually, who knows us by name, who delights in revealing himself personally, not just as some disembodied voice or force, but God come close. Ultimately in the person of Jesus, taking on flesh and blood, living a fully human life, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, dying in our place to enable us to know God. A God who is massive and eternal, and God who is also close and able to enter time and space. In his book, Krishkandir helpfully highlights three or four tendencies or errors that we can make by emphasizing one thing over the other. The transcendence of God, the fact that he is holy, mysterious, or powerful, or what's called the imminence of God, the fact that God is close and personal and near and available. And Chris says, in emphasizing one over the other, we have a tendency at times to miss who God really is. So if you overemphasize the transcendence of God, then that can leave you feeling really, really small and that God is, is miles away. I remember after an evening service some years ago, um, about this time of year, talking to a student 
He'd been away over the summer, and he'd gone to Teze in France. Now, Teze is, for some people, really, really helpful. It's a, a Roman Catholic retreat center for young people. They come from all over Europe, and uh, lots of people find it really, really helpful as a place where they can encounter God. But this young man had, had come back from Teze with a particular view of God that actually wasn't helpful. We'd sung songs, some of which were very similar to the ones uh, that we've sung tonight, that, that emphasized the closeness and the, the availability of God, that God is personal. And this guy was really struggling because he'd come back from Teze overwhelmed with the majesty of God, with the mystery of God. But he got stuck there. And it had led him to a place where he just thought that God was completely unknowable. And I tried to explain to him that that's not what it's about. That yes, God is incredibly powerful and majestic and, and he is this other distinct holy being, but he's also a God that can be known, that we can know personally. But he left church that evening just shaking his head and saying, no, 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 that's it. As far as I'm concerned, God can't be known because he'd overemphasized the transcendence of God, God's otherness, God's holiness. Similarly, if you overemphasize the reality of God in creation that can lead you to reflect on God's majesty and power, his, just his amazing beauty, maybe like me over the summer, you've, you've found yourself in a, a particular context or a particular situation. You've, you've been on a beach, you've been up a Monroe, you've been up a mountain, you've, you've watched a sunrise or a sunset, and you've just gone, wow, wow. We went to Croatia this year on our holidays, and we had a, a balcony in our apartment, and it faced um, the sunset every single night. And every single night, we would stand at the, uh, at the rail of this balcony and watch the sun going down over the Adriatic Sea. Um, and almost every night, we would just stand there and go, wow, because it was as if somebody had taken a palette of color and just gone, whoosh. And there were amazing dark blues and reds and golds, and it was just stunning. Or maybe you've seen a picture a bit like that, perhaps that's from the Rockies in Canada. And I remember going there 30 years ago, and it looks just like that. It is almost, it's like Scotland times 50. The mountains are enormous. The color of the waters is this glacial blue. It's just incredible. But if you get so overwhelmed by the beauty of God in creation then that can lead you to start to worship creation itself rather than the creator. And we see that reflected in, in parts of Buddhism or Hinduism or, or parts of the environmental green movement, where creation becomes the focus rather than the creator. This week I was watching the, 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 the 10 o'clock news and they had a series of, of segments on the partition uh, that occurred between India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And they were interviewing a, a Hindu freedom fighter who would go out every evening and was stopping uh, lorries on the road. And he wanted to know if, if these lorries were carrying cattle. 
And he was dead, deadly serious. He, he was dressed in sort of camouflage gear. And he looked at the camera and said, presumably in Hindi, uh, you know, if I find somebody who's carrying, uh, driving a, a, a lorry load of cattle, I will kill them. Because for him, as a Hindu, cattle are more sacred than human beings. You see, if you overemphasize creation, you lose sight and you lose perspective. And he's lost sight of the God-given fact that human beings are more important than cattle. Important though cattle are. I love my steak. <laughs> but the idea that somebody would kill a cow because, kill a man because they were going to kill a cow, I think is getting things out of perspective and proportion. So if you get caught up in the God of creation, then you start to lose your way. Well, that's if you overemphasize the transcendence of God. What happens if you overemphasize the imminence of God? God's personability, God's friendship, God's love, God's closeness. Well, if we do that, then we become over-familiar with God. And we end up with what somebody has called Jesus, my boyfriend songs. Now, to be fair to Mark, our worship director, um, there are good hymns written from the 19th century, and there are some appalling hymns written from the 19th century that are full of Victorian sentimentality and even some wrong theology. For example, um, there is a green hill far away, proclaims loudly in verse 4 that Jesus died to make us good. He didn't. It's complete nonsense. He died because we're not good. He didn't die to make us good. Now, so there's good hymns and there's bad hymns. And likewise, there are modern worship songs that are good and there are ones that aren't. Somebody once referred to them as being a bit like disposable nappies. They should be used once and then thrown away. And if we're honest, because it's influenced by our culture, and all of us are influenced by our culture to a lesser or greater degree, in the same way that 17th, 18th, and 19th, and 20th century hymn writers were influenced by their culture, some modern worship songs are influenced by our culture. And you end up very easily being able to substitute the word Jesus with the name of your boyfriend or girlfriend. And they become quite romantic, quite mushy, quite sort of Westlife-y, <laughs> but not in a good way. In fact, I remember two or three years ago now, uh, my eldest son, Josh, uh, used to amuse ourselves during the Eurovision Song Contest by thinking which particular worship style uh, was being emulated by which song. If you over-sentimentalize our relationship with God, then you run the danger of becoming too familiar with God. Again, two or three years ago, I heard some Christians that belonged to another church in Edinburgh started talking about Papa God. Papa God. And something within me just thought, that's, that's not right. It was like a sort of pet name for God. Now, yes, we can call God Father. That's absolutely who he is. Jesus did call his father. He used the word Abba, which is the sort of baby language word, Aramaic word for, for daddy, for, 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 
for father. Iona, uh, my daughter, will sometimes call me pappy, usually when she wants something off me. Uh, It's a particular word that she uses for me as her dad. But I think we're on slightly dangerous territory when we start to refer to God as Papa God. He is our Heavenly Father, that's true. But I think if we have pet names for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the Holy of Holies, then we're in danger of presuming too much in our relationship with God. And it is a tension. Jesus says in in Hebrews that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We are the sons and daughters of the king. We are God's children. We belong to his family. But in the way that C.S. Lewis described Aslan, he's friendly, but he's not tame. And we need to be careful in reducing God in the way that we think about him. And that really is the third danger that we run, where we create God to be about us, not about him. Where we create God in our image rather than reflecting on the fact that we are made in God's image. One study of American teenagers in the U.S. church described this. It was a sociologist who did this research as moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? It means that God is there to do what we want. God is there to do only what we understand. God is there to make our lives nicer, better, good. Now, if we're honest, there are these two extremes. Um, There is the sort of what you may have heard me refer to before as worm theology, and it's particularly prevalent in some parts of the Scottish church, this idea that we are but worms and there's nothing good within us. And there is, that is there, um, and it's, it's there in, in very dull, dour Christianity, particularly in Scotland. Uh, it's what H.L. Uh, Mencken, who was a philosopher, described as his definition of Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And it's there in the church in Scotland that, you know, if, God, if, it, if it's tough, if it's challenging, if it's really hard, then that must mean it's from God. So if it makes you happy, if you enjoy it, that cannot be from God. So you must stop it immediately. So that, that is there, but that's one extreme. But there is also the other extreme. And the other extreme says that God arranges events around us. That God answers our prayers the way we want him to. That God conforms to our expectations and that we make God in our image rather than focusing on the fact that we are made in his. And so we have this tension, this paradox. The transcendence of God, God's majesty and power, his beauty. A few months ago I was in Barcelona, and, and some of, we walked down Las Ramblas, which was quite sobering this week, to, to see the events that happened there. But we went into that amazing cathedral that it isn't finished and makes our building project look paltry. I mean, it's still going on, and it's cost millions, even more than ours. 
But everywhere you look in the cathedral, your, your, your eye is drawn to, to something different, and it's stunning. And you're, you're just overwhelmed with beauty and majesty and power, and you go, wow! So there's the transcendence of God, but then there's also the imminence of God. That God became a frail, fragile baby. That he was born as a human. He lived a fully human life. He entered into time and space. He lived a fully human life and then died the most human thing that you can do, dying a death. And then being raised again to new life so that we might know the transcendent God. God becomes imminent, personal, so that we can know the transcendent. And that's a paradox that we have to live with. That the God who made the entire universe and the Spirit of God who hovered over the waters at creation is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, And the same spirit who is at work in you and me if we know Jesus. And that's a paradox that we're going to have to live with this side of eternity. And we'll never get our heads around it. And we never should. Gemma.